Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today we have Michael Allen. Michael is the academic dean at Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He is the author of many books, including Grounded in Heaven, which we will talk about a little bit today. He also oversees with Scott Swain a few different commentary series and theological series, including the Theological Commentary Series with T.N.T. Clark and the New Studies in Dogmatics with Zondervan. He also is a churchman, and it's very obvious in the interview how much he loves the church. Uh, even though he is primarily an academic, doesn't even see himself called to pastoral ministry, but yet is really serving the church and pastors well. So I hope you'll appreciate this conversation. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see their new releases and their catalog of textbooks and pastoral resources and academic monographs and plenty of other things to help you and your church and your classroom and your personal library. You can also check out our other sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. It's an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. Go to csbible.com to find out more. And now our conversation with Michael and teeing us up is no big deal. Michael Allen on the line. Michael, thanks for hopping on with me. Hey, my pleasure. So let's talk, before we get into any theological stuff, we need to talk about something that is significantly more important, and that's NBA basketball. So you and I are both NBA fans, and I am a Dallas Mavericks fan, and you used to be a Dallas Mavericks fan, right? So did you grow up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s sort of era where they were good for a while and then just absolutely terrible? Yeah, and I grew up as a very small child, halfway between Atlanta and Dallas. So you had to choose your market. And I wound up as a young guy cheering for the Mavs. Yeah, because the Heat he, he didn't come around until 87. Is that right? 87 or 88. So there were, there were they no They came heat around in 88. Yeah. 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 So the Mavericks, uh, so in 2006, when the Mavericks and Heat played, who were you, who were you rooting for? I was uh, rooting for the Mavs. Okay. We can continue this podcast yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, sadly, I wasn't rooting for the referees in that series um, <laughs> yeah, maybe or I'm, for the Heat. Maybe I'm biased, but I think that might be the one time in history when fan base can legitimately say that they got hosed by referees. Uh, yeah, I, I think that one stands out a little bit. <laughs> but then 2011 came around and all was well, right? That's right. Yeah. Dirk got his title. Yeah. So that was great to see. And uh, I was living in South Florida again at that point. So um, it was interesting to, to cheer the Mavs on amidst the craziness. <laughs> but you were, you said, uh, you said before the podcast that you were a little, you were a little conflicted during that time when you were down there. I was, well, I mean, I was born and lived for the first few years of life in the deep South in Mississippi and Tennessee. Uh, and so closer to Dallas, obviously, but then I moved to Miami as a, a young teenager and have lived in Florida, I guess, about half my life. Um, so I, I did feel like a dual citizen in that series. <laughs> and, uh, you know, normally would root for both the Mavs or the Heat if they're playing against anybody else. Um, so that was a that was a tough one. 
Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you chose the right side. You didn't choose the dark side on that. So <laughs> you can go ahead and go back to cheering for Miami any other time. But it is it is funny that as as deep as the Mavs Spurs rivalry has always been, there's that because that 2006 finals, there's definitely an extra level of of uh, hate is not the right word because Christians aren't supposed to hate anybody. But whatever is closest to that for a Christian fan, that's how I feel for the Miami Heat still. Yeah, particularly uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Wade, probably Dwayne Wade particularly, but. Uh, but now you're an Orlando Magic fan, so now you've become you've entered back into the long-suffering fandom of NBA basketball. That's right. Although tickets are really, really cheap, so you know there yeah. there's a plus side there too. Well, it's funny when I was a kid, my dad took me to a Mavs game like in the late '90s, and they were playing the Lakers. And I asked him to buy a Kobe jersey. They were playing the Lakers, and I wanted to see Kobe in person. And my dad was so mad that I asked for a Kobe jersey, but then he ended up buying it for me, and then. It didn't fit right because I refused to try it on at the stadium. So my dad bought me like a $50 Kobe Bryant jersey that I literally never wore. So it was an insult injury for the poor guy. Yeah, I guess you got to frame that thing. Yeah, Anyhow. well, I ended up, I think I sold it or on eBay or something back when eBay was cool. I can't remember. But but anyway, yeah, now now you can come back to the Mavs again because we have Luka Doncic. We have the, the great, uh, the next great um, player of the NBA who's going to change everything. So just come on back home. Come on back home. <laughs> he's fun to watch that's for sure he's a true and better Aaron Gordon how about that that's <laughs> that's not hard but yeah <laughs> all right well let's talk a little bit about your story just how you mentioned a little bit growing up in the south and in Florida um, just how you became a Christian how you got into academics sort of your your journey through seminary and PhD mm -hmm. yeah so I grew up in a Christian family and uh, a really rich church environment and uh, grateful that I, I don't remember a day when I didn't know and trust Christ to be my Savior. Uh, had parents and a wider family and friends who were very committed to worshiping God, to evangelism, to prayer, um, and also to the idea of the life of the mind as an arena where you could glorify God. And so had a lot of exemplars in that respect. And uh, when I was a young guy, my dad uh, was in seminary part-time just for kicks. And eventually years later, he went into the pastorate. Wow. And so, uh, I grew up, uh, for at least a, the better part of my childhood as a pastor's kid, um, for a while, literally living at the church in a manse, always very involved, uh, with that being a kind of ever present reality. And so the idea that, that Christ cared about all of life, um, just made very obvious sense to me. It was something that was very evident, uh, even in where we lived uh, and the rhythms of the week. And my parents were great exemplars of sort of realistic and uh, grace-saturated piety. Uh, never expected more of me because I was a pastor's kid, but modeled piety and devotion and steadfastness. Did you grow up Presbyterian and, uh, or a different I did grow up Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in the PCA and the EPC specifically. And uh, I, I never wanted to be a pastor or go into ministry. I, from about age three on, had my life planned and went off to college with a major in mind and a vocation and grad school already set. And it wasn't until college that I really, for the first time, felt called to vocational ministry. And a couple of years later, uh, felt encouraged to think about a, an academic vocation in particular. And uh, so it was during college years uh, at Wheaton College up in Chicago that really had a redirection 
um, not of piety, but of sense of vocation and of what I wanted to study and, and where I might envision God sending me. And so that, that led to grad school, that led to the PhD, and uh, that's led to serving now in, in different settings to try and shape men and women for further theological study, for ministry in church settings, and, and a, a range of other areas. So where did you, uh, what did you do your dissertation on? Who were you studying with when you did your PhD? So I was doing my PhD at Wheaton. I uh, managed to do all three degrees there. Wow. Um, which is there. sort of abnormal and wasn't originally intended. But once you figure out where the books are in the library, it's hard to move. <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, I actually got to do a, a rather large topic. Most theologians wind up doing something on a, a particular figure, but they let me take a crack at a, a broader doctrine. And so I wrote on the humanity of Christ and in particular the question of whether or not Jesus uh, would have exercised faith during his earthly life, whether that made sense as something you could say of the incarnate son, uh, metaphysically, and whether or not that would matter with regard to the, the grace that he offers us in the gospel soteriologically. And that led me to thinking about a lot of Christological issues and some theological principles underneath them. And it, it forced me to interact with some big thinkers from across the tradition, whether it's Thomas Aquinas or Karl Barth or others. Um, so it was a it was a really exciting thing to try and take a crack at and uh, to set me up to keep studying some great texts and big questions uh, in years since. So what what was your uh, what were your conclusions on that dissertation? Did you just go full canonicism on that or? Uh... I <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't say I went full canonicism. No, I, I did argue that contrary to Thomas, that we have good reason to believe that uh, Jesus, as a human being, uh, did in fact exercise faith, perfect faith, that he's the author and perfecter of faith, as Hebrews 12 puts it, and uh, that that makes sense as a, a human expression of fidelity in his earthly life, and we've no reason to preclude that from his experience and all sorts of exegetical reasons to affirm it. And then I talked about ways in which that can help fill out uh, our understanding of the gospel, uh, particularly for myself as a Presbyterian Reformed person who looks to sort of the covenant theology tradition of the Westminster Standards. But also I examined how folks from other perspectives than my own could see them filled out were they to take up that idea either in a you know, a Roman Catholic Thomist perspective on the one hand or a, a Bardian Reformed perspective on the other. So I hope that even folks from from different perspectives from my own might be able to to benefit in some way. Yeah, and that, that does lead to uh, another thing I want to talk about was just your focus and care for Catholicity in the church. You know, the idea that our traditions can learn from one another, can learn from the past, can retrieve things from the past together. Uh, I know you and Scott Swain have done a ton of work in this in this area as Presbyterians and Reformed people. And, uh, you know, myself and Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps have the Center for Baptist Renewal trying to kind of carry on the Timothy George, David Dockery wing of the Baptist world. And so I'm really thankful for the work that you've done there. What are some ways that you, well, maybe a better question is kind of how did you, did somebody develop that in you to kind of have this sense of, I want to serve other traditions and be served by other traditions? Or is this something you picked up in grad school? How'd you kind of come around to, to having that sort of posture? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure lots of different things, if I were to think autobiographically, play into it. I mean, I did not grow up in a fundamentalist world. Um, And so I grew up in an environment where at school and at home and at church, uh, we were encouraged to read and listen to others and to engage others, um, asking how their perspective might enhance ours. Um, When I went to Wheaton, one of the great gifts was uh, being able to befriend and learn from and interact with men and women from all over the globe, from right. uh, every theological tradition in the evangelical world, uh, and also to read texts from across the centuries and to really see them as, as prompts that might help me read the Bible better. And uh, all of that was just really impressive in me that, you know, it's it's one thing to say that in any area of life we learn by listening to others and trying to gain from their perspective. But especially when we talk about the Word of God and we talk about the people of God, there's a unique promise here that uh, is more than just the benefit of community. It's the benefit of the Spirit of Christ having been given to the whole people of God. And therefore, we've got unique theological reasons to have promise and confidence uh, that we will benefit from engaging with the people of God around the globe and through the centuries, uh, folks who've been ordained, folks who are laypersons, uh, folks from a range of traditions uh, that will learn from them, will be challenged by them, even where we disagree, hopefully will be enhanced in our understanding of our own position as well as theirs, uh, and also that we'll be able to benefit them, and uh, that that's part of uh, living as the whole people of God, seeking to be more fully conformed to the entirety of, of God's Word. So, uh, you know, lots of different ways, I guess, that's been modeled and experienced, and, um, you know, that continues just to very much be a pursuit and something that uh, I would hope in decades to come I'd, I would more fully live into. Yeah. So what are some ways that your tradition, kind of Presbyterian reform tradition, what are the the types of things that your tradition you think offers to other traditions, regardless of, you know, where we disagree on soteriology or eschatology or even some hermeneutical issues. What are some things that, that you feel like you, uh, your tradition is really contributing to the church that maybe people haven't thought about that they could grab onto or, or take a hold of even in another tradition? Yeah. I mean, in different times, different ones would be more or less uh, to the fore, but I, I do think a major hallmark, and if, if anything's a, a central facet of the Reformed tradition, it's, it's always and everywhere to trace things back in every situation to God. Yeah. Uh, Herman Bovinkel argued that that's the root of all Reformed theology. I think he's right. Um, and that's a good reminder of, of sort of the God-centeredness of the Reformed tradition. Uh, I think there's a, an earnestness about worshiping God in God's manner. Uh, that we would long to uh, take seriously the fact that we're made to worship and that we're instructed how to do so, and we're graced uh, by Christ, our mediator and intercessor, uh, to do so. Um, And then I I think also the Reformed tradition at its best, there have been moments at its worst, but at its best, it has really combined personal piety and devotion with a a rich communal life, uh, centered around the means of grace, the way God 
longs to build us up through uh, the life of the people of God around his word. And uh, I think that uh, is something that that's a useful gift to all traditions. Yeah. And it's um, interesting too, if you think about like the, you know, the second London confession, the, the particular Baptist confession is basically the Westminster confession with a couple things added on to make it Baptisty. You know, or if you read, uh, yep. if you read John Wesley's 44 sermons, one of my favorite little collections of sermons by him, you know, there's definitely some things in there that we talks about perfection and some very Wesleyan type things. But man, if you read his sermon on the sovereignty of God, you're, I mean, you're reading a guy who, who was reared in many ways, reared in the reformed tradition. I mean, the, the, a lot of, a lot of our traditions have a lot of roots in those same ideas. Right. Yeah. And similarly, when he's talking about justification by faith alone, he'll, yeah. he'll sound very much, uh, like a traditional reform theologian. So lots of similarities. Yeah. So I think we, you know, that's where I, I hope that your work and, and some of the things that we're doing can continue to push people in that direction. You know, in the Baptist world, there's, there's just Baptists or yeah, I guess every tradition has their sort of, you know, there's 50 different versions of them, but Baptists have a lot of different streams and types of Baptists. You know, you got your landmarkists who don't think that um, anybody is a Christian, basically, you know, <laughs> they, uh, they trace everything back to uh, Jesus in the Jordan with John the Baptist. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're sort of just like, they don't care about tradition. They think Baptists kind of went around the Reformation, not through the Reformation or out of the Reformation. And you've got your Wesleyans who think that, you know, Calvinists uh, have the worst God ever. And you've got Calvinists who think that Arminians are all Pelagians and, you know, you've got all that kind of stuff. But man, if you, if you drill down to even just the basics, you know, your Calvins and your Arminius and your Wesley and some of your early Baptist writers, you find that there's a lot of similarities there. And, and they're all really even, you know, you read Luther as well, Lutherans, you, they're all drawing back on even the early church, the patristic uh, resources. You know, the, the Reformation didn't forget about the medieval and patristic exegesis. They definitely made some some different, you know, some changes and some developments and some pushback, but we're mm-hmm. all sort of coming from that same early stream. So how do you think that how do you think that patristic theology in particular sort of can can help all of us? And why is it why is it that we different denominations and traditions, regardless of where they come from, should be looking maybe at the church fathers and patristics more than we typically do? Yeah. Well, I mean I I think obviously at a theological level we had to do that because the Holy Spirit guided and led the church and preserved it. Um, and so it's a way of, of honoring the Spirit. At a historical level, uh, the most fundamental questions were thought through in their most profound ways in the early centuries of the church. That is, who's God? and What do we make of Jesus Christ? And so for just obvious historical reasons, you, you can't think responsibly about those subjects without, at the very least, paying patient, careful attention to the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries mm-hmm. uh, and the debates that played out there, the creedal statements that came from that time. Um, you know, And then just beyond that, there are remarkable witnesses for a variety of reasons. I mean, folks who are remarkable minds, to be sure, but also who are in unique situations of witness. I mean, uh, a lot of the ways in which we think about social issues, we, we could do really well to think about someone like Basel of Caesarea or Gregory Nyssa and the way that they engaged social issues in their time, even while they're dealing with Trinitarian heresy. Um, you know, if, if we want to think about uh, how to witness in an increasingly post-Christian era, um, you know, everyone would do well to just go to a room and read Augustine's City of God for a week. Right. Um, so, you know, for a lot of, of very particular kind of uh, 
uh, missional reasons, they're also useful. So there are just a whole range of things. Um, and, and the last would be just for exegetical reasons. The the fathers and the medievals, for that matter, as well, um, they are so scriptural. Now, that doesn't mean their interpretations are inviolable or always even helpful, um, but they are constantly talking Bible, and they're constantly talking Bible in a way that takes any given text and connects it to others. And that's just so refreshing in a day and an age where biblical literacy is so low and where even academic theology tends to be far less exegetically inflected. Uh, and when it does occur, it often is atomistic mm-hmm. and looks at this text apart from others. And I think uh, it's just a breath of fresh air, and it's provocatively helpful to engage folks who are constantly talking Bible, constantly trying to think across the canon, um, and, and trying to apply the Bible as a, a lens through which they see themselves in the world. Uh, so lots of reasons to be reading the Fathers, to be reading the Medievals, uh, and to be understanding the Reformed and, and broader Reformation theology as a movement within that church, not against it. Yeah, and I, it's funny. I had a, a younger guy in our church, and I recommended uh, Athanasius on Athanasius's on the Incarnation to him. He's asking me, you know, where should I start with a patristic book or whatever? And I gave him that one and a few others. And he read on the Incarnation. He came back. He's like, I mean, I really liked it, but I mean, it wasn't anything like didn't seem special, like anything new. And I'm like, that's right. It's not <laughs> new. It's like the seminal work on on the Incarnation, you know, uh, in the patristic period. So the reason why it feels uh, almost boring in a way is because you've been reading a bunch of other people who are footnotes to that in some ways, you know, and so it's always helpful to go back and sort of read the original sources and read it from the beginning rather than read, you know, you read John Piper and say, well, Calvin doesn't seem quite as impressive now that I, or Edwards doesn't seem quite as impressive now that I've read Piper or, you know, whatever it is, Calvin and Augustine, you know, but if you, if you keep drilling back, you get to see some of the, the, even the early formulations of what those people are doing later on as well. Right. Yeah. It's always good to avoid being a second hander as much as you can. And, uh, you know, often what I find students find again and again is uh, that the primary sources are actually easier to read. Yeah. Uh, that they're, they're more pastorally and spiritual, spiritually charged and energetic than a normal survey text. Um, and that, that, that's confidence inspiring and boosting. Uh, you know, it, it commends the idea that they can read this and that they can benefit from reading an Athanasius or an Irenaeus uh, from a Basel or an Augustine. Yeah, for sure. Um, and now you've done, you mentioned Aquinas earlier. I know you've done a little bit of work there as well. I felt like he is one, of, at least in my experience, in my sort of educational academic experience, he has been one of the more controversial people that I've heard about because you have people in philosophy who argue about Aquinas. You have people in theology who argue about Aquinas. You have people who blame Aquinas for what Roman Catholicism turned into and why we need the Reformation in the first place. Sometimes I get the, I almost feel like Protestants appreciate Aquinas more than Catholics at times, especially when it comes to some, uh, you know, some of the classic Trinitarian language and things like that. So what are, what are some of the, the things that you appreciate and some of the things about Aquinas that you're like, yeah, these are, these are valid critiques? Yeah. I mean, it's an impossible question at one level, of course, because you're right. Philosophers, political theorists, ethicists, and theologians of all stripes look at him. So the literature's vast. It's been variegated since the time he was alive. Um, You know, Thomas is remarkable in trying to think through with care, uh, with 
remarkable uh, self-critical methodology, um, what he can and must say about God and everything related to God. Um, he demonstrates, even in the way in which he organizes, say, his Summa Theologiae, uh, probably his most referenced text, uh, every time he addresses something, he, he begins by dealing with the most serious counter-arguments to his own position. Yeah and their best evidence. And it strikes me that that's just a remarkable self-awareness um, that we need to listen carefully to our opponents, that we need to take their best arguments uh, with earnestness. Uh, and he demonstrates just a great humility in that regard. Um, he, uh, he is someone who is engaged exegetically, uh, writing many commentaries on Scripture, Psalms, Job, Gospel according to John and, and much of Paul, um, dealing with Aristotle, trying to think through critically the the biggest cutting edge issue in his day, the rediscovery of Aristotle's works. Uh, so he just he demonstrates this concern to take every thought captive to Christ. Um, and third, he's a reformer. Now I don't mean he's a Protestant by any means, but even his Summa is an attempt to reform pastoral formation and to totally redo the genre of moral teaching given to folks who are about to go serve in pastoral roles, particularly in the confessional booth. And he's trying to steer it away from casuistry and what he would consider legalism and re-inject some grace and uh, a stronger emphasis on Christology. Um, he doesn't really succeed, but the fact that he tries is, is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, there are all sorts of topics where he's remarkable on, uh, issues of, of theology proper, uh, a range of moral issues, um, some eschatology. Uh, there are issues where any Protestant such as myself is just going to have to say, uh, you know, that's a brilliant exposition of why Martin Luther needed to go, uh, you know, perform an act of graffiti. Um, and, uh, you, you know, he's not the first. Augustine also taught the doctrine of justification that, that Thomas does, basically. But Thomas presents it in the most orderly and clear fashion. Um, and so, you know, there, there, there's some obvious breakpoints when you talk about sacramental life, when you talk about justification and sanctification and so on. Um, but even there, he's a productive interlocutor. He takes seriously opposing arguments. He tries to deal with key issues. Uh, and so that, that raises the bar for if we're going to protest, we need to protest in a way that takes seriously what he and Rome is saying, uh, what arguments they present, and that, that treats that as a call that we would be prepared to, to have similarly um, cogent, clear, and hopefully more biblical answers. So even there, I take it as a, an opportunity to learn. Yeah, that's the one thing about Catholicity and, you know, retrieving ancient sources. It's not just to see if you want to change your mind and it's not just to try to prove them wrong, but it's just a being in conversation. You know, it's, it's some ways it strengthens what you already believe. In some ways it changes or challenges what you believe. Sometimes you say, that's not right, but I don't know how to refute it yet, but I'm going to now I need to figure out how to refute it. Or I need to figure out how I feel, you know, how, how I, why I believe it and what the defense is. And so, you know, I, I remember being told in undergrad, you know, here are the people to avoid. Don't read this person and that person. And one of them was Aquinas. And I, you know, I just took that for what it was. 
And then in my grad program, we read Aquinas and I was like, holy cow, this guy's mm-hmm. awesome. You know I mean? He's, he's amazing. There's so much we can learn from him. And I was steered away from him. And I'm so thankful that in my grad work, I was at least introduced to him in, in excerpts in a little bit and then have been able to read him afterward. But particularly for me, his, I mean, Protestants can do really well, I think, to learn from his Trinitarian theology and the way that he talks about the missions and the way he talks about the taxes and things like that. I mean, that, that type of language is really soaring in his work. And it's something that evangelicals in particular and Protestants probably in general uh, could do better to go back to. I think that Trinity debate a couple of years ago uh, reawakened us to that idea. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of mainstream Protestants in the 20th century and then evangelicals more recently would have done a lot better if if they'd paid more careful attention to some of the categories and distinctions that a Thomas, or he's he's certainly not alone, even though he's probably the most famous medieval, but uh, you know other key figures, Hillary and Bonaventure, and yeah. of course Augustine and others before him. Um, you know, and again, just like you're saying, that doesn't mean that they're always right, and that doesn't mean that if you seek to deal with them charitably and patiently, that you're a card-carrying member of of some sort of club. The, Thomists or the Scotists or whatever it may be, um, but that you know you're seeking to listen to those who've listened to the word carefully, who've been led by the Spirit, and you're hoping to to stand on their shoulders to learn from successes and failures, uh, and to remember that it's it's not all simply about the answer; it's also about the the character of the theologian and the posture in which we seek to know God and and even if we might disagree on certain answers or positions, the way in which someone pursues something can also be a remarkable witness and a challenge and thankfully also an encouragement. Yeah, they, they always say that if, you're, if you want to be a better writer, read other writers as writers. You know, you kind of read how they put sentences right. together and how they put paragraphs together. And theology is no different at the end of the day, you know, just watching how people do stuff and, and going, oh, I, I see how he got to that point. That was really helpful. Or I saw how he got to that point. I don't know how he got there and I probably can't replicate it. <laughs> it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And that's, you know, I mean, that's true across fields, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that there are a lot of lay persons uh, and even non-Christians who are remarkable thinkers or communicators mm-hmm. um, or analysts. And we can be encouraged and we can be uh, provoked by seeing their excellence, which we would believe is a gift of God, even if they don't. And, you know, we could pray and pursue that, that we might have a similar increasing excellence in our pursuit to, to know God, even academically and theologically. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, change subjects a little bit here and talk about your, uh, your new book, Grounded in Heaven. Uh, you want to just sort of lay out sort of what you're trying to do there and what, what your hope for that book is, you know, what kind of led you to want to write that book? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'd been working on the topic of sanctification more broadly, and part of that led me to rediscover um, texts, largely in the patristic medieval eras, but also into the Puritan era, texts that were what we might call ascetical, focusing on asceticism or the life of self-denial, and, fo- and texts that were focused on what we call heavenly-mindedness or spiritual-mindedness. And uh, it became too big for that initial book, so I, I wound up writing this small little book, Grounded in Heaven. And the basic arguments that uh, my own Reformed tradition, strongly influenced by 
Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavinck and what we call neo-Calvinism in the 20th century, uh, that it's been great on lots of things, but that one of the unfortunate uh, side effects has been an emphasis on the resurrection of the body, the new creation, the this worldly nature of our eternal hope sort of responding to uh, versions of pietism and dispensationalism at the end of the 19th century sometimes, that that has occasionally become uh, a reprioritization so that our, our hope is really earthy and that there's actually either a silence about or an outright mockery of the hope of heaven, of the presence of God, mm. of what Christians before us would have called the beatific vision, and of the idea that precisely that kind of heavenly mindedness is what's always motivated women and men to self-sacrificial service, even to faithfulness unto martyrdom. And so uh, the book is, in one sense, a retrieval project trying to retrieve classical Christian hope that is Godward in focus. So talking about the beatific vision that we, we long to eventually see God uh, as Christ returns. Uh, and then that there's paired with that a retrieval of what I'll call evangelical asceticism, the idea that we need to commend heavenly mindedness and that that's a much earthly good and that uh, it fits the kind of creatures we are and the kind of gospel that God's provided. Um, I go on. It's not mere retrieval. I also want to argue that the Reformed, particularly in the 16th and 17th centuries, they reformed both of those ideas. There's a there's a helpful reform of the doctrine of the beatific vision, say, in the work of John Owen, where it's a more Christ-centered notion of how we see God eventually. And Calvin and others reform the idea of self-denial, um, looking back at, at patristic and medieval asceticism. But uh, I, I do think those two topics uh, are topics that are easily forgotten in our secularized age. They're topics that have been often dismissed in my own corner of the Christian world, the Reformed world, and they're topics, they're just right at the heart of what Jesus calls us to when he calls us to, uh, you know, become disciples and to take up our cross and to view ourselves as citizens of heaven. Uh, and so for all sorts of just basic reasons of discipleship and of uh, Christian formation, uh, it was a, a really significant project for me to work on. Yeah, I was just reading, actually, just got done reading uh, Hans Boersma's new book, Seeing God, where he talks about the beatific vision in the Christian tradition. And he yep. talks in there, he says, you know, basically a lot of people see the beatific vision as nothing more than thankfulness to God for being able to go to heaven one day, you know. And he says, no, like on the opening page of the book, he says, no, seeing God is the purpose of our life. The beatific vision is ultimately our life's purpose. So what are your what are your thoughts on kind of that idea and how the church has viewed it and, and what are some ways that you particularly think the beatific vision should be uh, renewed for us both personally, pastorally, theologically? Yeah, I mean it's it's probably helpful just to point out that the reason we're talking about vision, whether it's in the phrase the visio dei, the vision of God, or the beatific vision, that is the the vision of blessedness, uh, we're simply talking about seeing God and we're we're using the image of seeing. A, because the Bible does, that we'll see him when he returns and we shall be like he is. But B, because sight, that kind of face-to-face -face sight, it is a heightened sensory description of intimacy and closeness. 
And so it's it's meant to convey the idea of presence and intimacy, that we will enjoy God in a way that goes beyond the hearing or the faith that we know him by now. Um, and so one thing we could say is that uh, the beatific vision, it reminds us that we're made for covenant and for communion and that, uh, you know, the, the greatest thing in creation was that God on the seventh day dwelt there, mm. that it was a fit place for him to rest and to be with his people. And the greatest thing at the end of the Bible is not that sin's gone or that tears are no more or that our bodies are raised anew, though those are all good. Uh, but it's behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity, that uh, he will be with us and that he's not restricted to a temple building, but the entirety of the place is filled with his glory and his presence. Um, and of the many things in the middle that we could say of the, the turning point of, of scripture, the coming of the son, uh, the many names and titles that he, he bears, I would submit that none is greater than the name Emmanuel, that he is God with us mm -hmm. and that the transfiguration depicts that remarkable gift that we can take in his glory and we needn't fear which is a really strange thing. That's why Peter's scared to death. And uh, that's just a remarkable encapsulation of the gospel that, yes, our sin is done away with. Yes, our bodies are raised anew. Yes, reconciliation occurs at every level. But that ultimately the greatest purpose of all that is so that we can be with God and be with God in the most potent way possible for human creatures. Um, and so we remain creaturely, but we we do experience his glory in, in the optimal sense. Mm. And so Christians have always used the language of actually being able to take him in by sight, uh, which is this just remarkably powerful image. Um, and I, I think we do well to remember that and to keep God at the center of our hope. Yeah, and one of the pastoral implications that comes out in your book as well is, is dealing with suffering and temptation and some of these sort of just daily the daily things we go through living in a fallen world. So talk a little bit about just the pastoral implications of the vision and being grounded in heaven, looking toward new creation, all the things you talk about there. What are some ways that, that pastors and, um, you know, just everyday Christians can be encouraged by that? Yeah. I mean, I do think uh, the book was written out of and hopefully written for people in difficult circumstances. I mean, I, I was studying and writing as I was going through a, a terrible year medically and uh, months and months of uh, sort of wild suffering on that front. And, and I hope it does address the fact that as we suffer all sorts of different earthy, earthy troubles, whether it's health or it's finances or it's fractured relationships, uh, dashed dreams, um, that one of the great lessons that I think Jesus longs to teach us is not merely that God provides answers to our questions, but oftentimes God wants to change us and give us better questions. And I found that, you know, as I would pray and seek to commune with God amidst uh, serious physical suffering, uh, that the most potent thing was not, how is my physical suffering going to be alleviated or addressed? But is my longing for relief going to actually be deepened to take in my bigger needs and problems? Mm. And, uh, you know, it seems to me so often that's what the Psalms and what the prayers of Paul and what the teaching of Jesus does, that it, it just reminds us, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And there, 
there's a breadth to our concern. God cares of all of life, even daily bread, but there's prioritization. And part of growing in grace is growing increasingly to care more about what really matters. And suffering is a a context for that to occur. The second thing I'd mention, and uh, this is is one that I think needs to be a lifelong concern for all of us as well, is uh, we do live in a world that is oftentimes loveless and unjust, and Christians are called to be those who care for the least of these. And it's very tempting to believe individually and even politically that we can do that without cost. Mm. And it just seems to me that if we're really honest, whether we're thinking governmentally or civically or familially or personally, that love, it, it bears costs of different sorts. And we ought to be honest about that. And that means we've got to think about how we're going to be motivated to bear costs and to sacrifice, to put Uh, our own to the side for a moment, our own sense of entitlement or of rights or of what we deserve or what's comfortable that we might benefit others. And it it just seems to me that the way the Bible consistently motivates that kind of neighbor care and that kind of selflessness is by pointing us heavenward. Hmm. And if we take away that heavenly mindedness, we are we are largely cutting away the biggest motivating factor for self-sacrificial pursuit of justice and of love. And uh, we need that terribly uh, in days like this. So I think we've got a lot to learn from those Christians who, uh, in the Bible and after the times of the Bible, were so fixed on heaven that they were of great earthly good in all sorts of ways, um, in building schools and caring for the poor, in evangelizing those who didn't know the name of Christ, um, in you know, serving for the elderly and the young and pouring themselves out in all sorts of ways. And so, you know, both in terms of suffering and in terms of um, self-sacrificial love for others, I I think heavenly mindedness is absolutely crucial, central to the biblical ethic. Now, what would you think about, you know, there's some of the debates that we have are, you know, your, your motivation for following Christ, your motivation for loving your neighbor should be out of a pure heart, out of a heart for God, a heart for loving God, and not out of obligation, right? Um, the beatific vision, obviously, and, and, and having this heavenly mindedness definitely is the type of thing of you're doing this because of your vision of God and your love for God. But there are times where you don't feel like you don't have that joy. You don't feel like reading your Bible. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like being faithful to your spouse. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like doing these things. You know, I, I find that a lot of times people use obligation as a negative term, as though like obligation and legalistic are the same thing. But there are times where, right. you know, because we have the heavenly vision, because we have a deeper ethic, even when we don't feel like it, even whenever our heart's not in it, it's not hypocritical to still do the right thing, to still look up and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a good thing because it's objectively good to do because it's good for society. It, it mirrors the new creation. It points people to the new creation. So how do you how do you kind of balance those two things out in in just this idea of having heavenly mindedness? Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're exactly right, and you're naming what is a real struggle, um, and that's that's precisely why we need not just law woven into our nature, but stated to us. Luther will point out that if we were perfect in terms of sinlessness the law would just be woven into our being perfectly in such a way without 
any indwelling sin, that we would never need the law stated to us explicitly and outwardly. Uh, and I, I think you're right. That notion of things obliging me um, is something that I often do chafe against and, and sort of have a knee-jerk response to. Um, and, and that's just a reminder of the fact that I'm you know, still in the wilderness on my way to Canaan. I'm not in Egypt, thankfully, but I'm not yet in the promised land. And uh, looking back to the stories of old, I mean, that's precisely where we do need uh, the means of grace and the reminders that God provides uh, of the way in which he's made us to live, uh, the, the higher calling to which we've been called. And, uh, you know, that's that's why the, the ministry of the word, the life of the people of God, those things are so significant. Um, and I think you're right. Obligation, uh, it may not be the best word, but it's certainly not a bad word, right? Mm. Uh, it plays a key role uh, when we when we don't feel uh, motivated or delighted to do something. It is a good thing that we feel obliged to do it, nonetheless. The obligation is not the ideal, but it is something that exists in a fallen world. Right, and maybe to be more specific, ob- bare obligation isn't the ideal. Even mm-hmm. when I feel delighted to do it, I'm still obliged to do it. Obligation yeah. is always the case, but. Um, when there's nothing more than obligation that prompts me, well, that's a good thing. It's not ideal. It's not best. And I trust God will continue to grow me. But um, you don't want your conscience to grow callous. And so it's not a small thing to listen to conscience and to that sense of obligation. And, uh, you know, in our culture, I think we could say that one of the scary things, it's not that sin is new or anything like that, but that there is a shamelessness that seems to be on the rise and uh, sort of the, the kind of notion that even obligation would, would lead us to follow some sort of cultural mores about how we treat one another civilly. Um, that seems to be on the wane. And that's a scary thing in terms of uh, sort of communal life. Yeah. And Christians ought to appreciate the importance of, you know, even acting out of just bare duty by way of, of respecting those around us um, above and beyond as Christians, the higher calling of loving others because they bear the image of God alongside us. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's go. Final question. This might be even more important than the basketball question. You and <laughs> you and Scott Swain, Swaylin, as you guys have been called. Um, so he is the president at RTS Orlando. We had him on, on uh, here on church grammar uh, a little while ago. And uh, you're sort of the the two headed monster of the reformed world right now. So you've been at you've been at RTS what five years, five six years, going on five years now. Yeah. yeah. And so were yeah. you guys already working together before that, or was that sort of a a match made in heaven when when he brought you uh, or when you were brought over to RTS? Uh, we've we've been working together on publishing projects for almost a decade now. Okay. So before I moved here for several years, we were involved in. Uh, writing together articles and a couple book projects and then a couple large book series, a biblical commentary series written by theologians mainly, and then a dogmatic series. Yeah, I guess those were all, so it's, those were all thought of long before the first one came out, I guess. So. Yeah, so those, those were already cooking and uh, in planning for several years. And it's been fun now as colleagues and, and even as administrators uh, to take that concern. Both of us really believe that 
uh, institutions matter and that institutions can do far more than individuals mm. uh, if you tend to them well. And uh, that shaped why we wanted to not just write articles or books together, but uh, to envision and to invest a lot of time in, in series of books over the course of years and decades. And then also now to think about uh, a seminary context administratively and how to hopefully uh, equip our, our wonderful colleagues and maximize their service by thinking institutionally about how to, how to lead well. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess if your faculty wants to know how the administration thinks about theology and Catholicity and other things, all they got to do is start reading some books, and they'll get they'll get a full fledged argument there pretty quickly, huh? Yeah, well, and hopefully, it. I, I think our aim is that it shapes the way in which we do classes yeah. and the way in which students are shaped in terms of practical exercises and and the environment and ethos. And um, you know, hopefully, that's something that uh, has an an ongoing impact in churches increasingly. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, you know, we we as Baptists, some of us Baptists who have the same sort of concerns and same, you know, posture, really, really thankful for the way that you guys are leading the way on that in so many ways. You guys are modeling humility and theological humility in a lot of really unique ways. I mean, the fact that that neither of you are trying to do everything solo, but you're actually doing a lot of work together. You know, it's easy in academia to, to want to be independent and get all the credit. And you guys have... Uh, been together so much that there's been a nickname created for you. So I think that's actually, that's a good thing <laughs> in the broad scheme of things. Well, you're very kind. If you ever, uh, if you need me to translate anything Scott may have said on the in, the interview last week, feel free to ask. I can, uh, <laughs> well, he, I can uh, try and paraphrase, we talked bring primarily, him down to the common man. Yeah, we talked primarily about him becoming a Presbyterian. So half the time I wasn't listening, I was just really sad uh, that he's no longer a Baptist. <laughs> so. So I don't know there if you go. Feel free not. to play a Russian concerto in the background <laughs> while he tells that story. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for hopping on with me, Michael. This was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Great to be with you.